I love it. So yeah, my name is Zach Wiley, uh, and it's just a privilege to, to be with you this evening. Thank you to Pastor Ben and the board for the opportunity to, to bring the word this evening. And so tonight we're going to explore the concept of fellowship, and we really see uh, the pattern of fellowship set by the, the early church, right, in Acts 2.42. And, and one of the many things I love about Christianity is the bond that we have in Christ. Going to Bible college, it was an amazing opportunity for me as I experienced Christian fellowship like I had never experienced it before. I'm thrown into a, a dorm room of five other guys, and even though we came from very different backgrounds, I experienced rich community. Um, I experienced accountability, and that could only happen because of our fellowship with God. And so in, in talking about fellowship, we will specifically examine fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. Fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. And this is going to take us to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Now, the book of Hebrews is really a gem of a book, as it really highlights how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all these realities established in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest. And not only is he our high priest, as in the one who offered the sacrifice on our behalf, he is also the sufficient sacrifice. What the blood of bulls and goats can never do, Jesus Christ accomplished in the crucifixion and resurrection. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, as we learn in Hebrews. And I love that song tonight that Steve led us in, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. We are participants of a new covenant. We are not under the law. We are under grace. And so the unknown author, possibly Paul, in this book, he's shared the doctrine up to this point and the reason why the Jewish audience who's receiving this letter, why they should not leave the Christian faith for Judaism. This then leads us to our section, getting into really the application or the exhortation portion of the book. So if you are able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. As I mentioned before, and as you can see on the screen, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Let's read and then we'll pray. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more, uh, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, it, it's doctrine, that it teaches us, that it convicts us, that it corrects us, and that it instructs us in righteousness. So Lord, I pray that your word would, would do that. Holy Spirit, you be our teacher. We submit to you humbly and ask that you will uh, guide us in all truth, Lord. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone says, Amen. And so here in our first section, looking at verses 19 through 22, we're going to look at fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. And you can see that this passage begins with the word therefore. As stated before, in light of the reality of Jesus being our great high priest and the sufficient sacrifice. This then causes us to take action in the verses that follow. And that next word, brethren, that really informs us of the audience, that this is written to the believers. So what is about to be said applies to believers. And I think it's also significant that it is addressed to multiple people, the brethren, not just one, especially in light of the next part. So having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What is the holiest? The holiest refers to the holy of holies, the innermost part, the most sacred area of the tabernacle or temple. The Holy of Holies was where God's presence dwelt most tangibly. It held the Ark of the Covenant, which really was a symbol of Israel's special relationship with God, for it contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and manna. The top of the Ark was the mercy seat. The Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple or tabernacle by a veil. The Holy of Holies or the Holiest was not entered by anyone and everyone, and it could not be entered whenever at any time. Leviticus 16, 2 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So looking at the Holy of Holies, who could enter, what conditions had to be met, and when could they enter? The Holy of Holies was accessible only to one person, the Israelite high priest. It was accessible once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was permitted to enter the small windowless enclosure to burn incense and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat of the ark. By doing so, the high priest atoned for his own sins and those of the people. The Holy of Holies was separated, as I mentioned before, from the rest of the tabernacle or temple by the veil, which was a huge heavy drape made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and embroidered with gold cherubim. The veil and the elaborate rituals undertaken by the priests 
we're a reminder that man could not carelessly or irreverently enter God's awesome presence. Before the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to wash himself, put on special clothing, bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from the direct view of God, and bring sacrificial blood with him to make atonement for sins. This whole process really paints a clear picture of the holiness of God and how our sin separates us from God. It is also, it helps us clearly remind us that our sin requires payment, which points us to the cross. But the Hebrew audience hearing these words in verse 19 are probably in shock. Entering the holiest? What? Because entering the Holy of Holies was really impossible. Entering the Holy of Holies really meant death. And so even within the temple complex, there were various courts that only certain people could enter, that only certain people had access to. And so let's play a a short game. Instead of limbo and how low can you go, let's play temple and see how close you can go, how close you can be to God's presence in the Holy of Holies if you were living before Christ. So, if any of these qualifications apply to you, just raise your hand, and that's how we'll play the game. So, first off, uh, any male in here who is Jewish, from the, li- from the tribe of Levi, descended from Aaron, a.k.a. Moses' brother, and appointed as high priest. Does that apply to anyone in here? <laughs> you guys are funny. Uh, none of us would have access to the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, what about inside the holy place, outside the veil? Um, any Jewish males from the tribe of Levi? Okay, none. What about the Israelites' courtyard? If you are a male Jew, you could access this portion of the temple complex. Anybody here? Okay. A woman's courtyard. Are there any Jewish women here? Okay. Lastly, we have the Gentiles' courtyard, the Temple Mount. Who here is a Gentile, a.k.a. not a Jew? That should be the rest of us, right? If not all of us. And, And so one of my favorite artifacts in Israel, which can be viewed in the Israel Museum, is this. This is a first century Greek inscription from the Jerusalem's Temple Mount, forbidding entry of Gentiles to the temple precinct. It reads, no foreigner shall enter. No foreigner shall enter. It's one of my favorite artifacts because this is what I would see as a Gentile. It's what you would see as a Gentile if you came to worship God at the temple in the time of Jesus. And it reminds me of this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called on circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were, who were once you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so I hope the significance of this verse, verse 19, sinks in tonight, knowing that in Christ we have direct access to God, the Holy of Holies. In order to fellowship with God, we don't come to Him by the blood of bulls or goats, but rather by the blood of Jesus. For it's Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. It's through his sacrifice, trusting in him and what he has accomplished that we are made righteous and can be called sons of God. We must understand that our sin indeed separates us from God. Before we were saved, we were enemies of God. We were sons of disobedience, but we have been reconciled to God and been brought near by the blood of Christ, when we repented and placed our faith in him. Amen? So recap, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, we could not enter the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. But now, not only can we enter the presence of God by the blood of Christ, we can do so with boldness, with confidence. And our confidence is not found in our own abilities or in our own works, but rather our confidence is found in Christ and what he has done on our behalf. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness, not our own. Our own righteousness is like filthy rags. And as it pertains to this verse, you know, we believe in the priesthood of believers, that believers don't go to someone to access God, that we don't get to God through a priest, a pastor, the Pope, Mary, or a dead saint. We have direct access to God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. We also don't have to go to a, a certain geographic location in, in order to access God. Roger mentioned this Sunday that there are many things that we take for granted. May we never take for granted the access to God that we possess through Christ. Guys, it is a privilege to pray to our Heavenly Father. When I pray, this is, this is what's crazy. When I pray, God hears me. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him it's not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not in our works. It's in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And we know that, that prayer is talking to God and it really speaks of a living relationship with God, the, the Lord of the universe. Because if you talk and you spend time with the people you love, right? You take the time to talk with them. You take the time to interact with them. 
hear what's going on. May we be intentional in spending time with God in prayer. Looking at verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. This new and living way contrasts with the old way, the old covenant that the Hebrew audience was being pressured to return back to. It's new because of Jesus and what he has done. Hebrews 8.13 says, uh, in that he, being Jesus, says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What's crazy is uh, this passage and, and Jesus, they, they speak of the temple's destruction, which happened in 70 AD, um, which, is, which is crazy, right? So it's, it's obsolete. We have a new covenant. The old way was full of death. And to illustrate this, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, they sacrificed 22,000 bulls. I'm not talking about cereal bulls. I'm talking about horned cattle, right? So catch this, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Let that sink in. Christ's death was once and for all. It was once and for all. It's also living because Jesus, he is resurrected, he is alive, and he lives in us. He lives in us. And I don't know if you recall, but in Matthew 27, 51, it shares what happened in the temple during Jesus' death. It says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. When did the veil in the temple tear? Was it when Christ was born? Was it when he was resurrected? It happened when he died. I think that's interesting. We talked about Christ's blood in verse 19, and here in verse 20 it mentions Christ's flesh. And I can't help but think of the ordinance Christ commanded the church to partake in, that ordinance being communion, right? For Jesus, uh, the night that he was betrayed, the Passover meal, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The bread, the cup, they serve as a memorial of remembrance, but also a declaration of what Christ did on the cross. And this is the new covenant that we celebrate. So what price did Jesus pay so I could pray? His crucifixion. His flesh was torn. His blood was spilt so I could come before him in prayer. How amazing is that, that we have that privilege. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. Jesus Christ is our high priest over the house of God, over the people of God, the church. And one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is how Christ is 
better. He is better than the angels. He's the better sacrifice. He is also the better high priest. And so in light of who Jesus is and the reality the author has presented, we have this multiple part holy invitation from our high priest. That invitation includes, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession, let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, let us not forsake assembling ourselves together, and let us exhort or encourage one another. You know, we have so much lettuce here that some people consider this passage a spiritual salad. But uh, here we go, our, our first part of our salad Uh, Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, having boldness, confidence in who Christ is and what he has accomplished. We are then invited to draw near. How do we draw near? With a true heart or a sincere heart, we have assurance of faith. We don't have partial assurance. It is full. As discussed previously, under the old covenant, near was not very near. We can enter the holiest for our high priest has sprinkled our hearts from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Our consciences are cleansed by his blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 13 through 14 reads, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The guilt that we once held onto because of our sin, that is dealt with by our faithful high priest and his priestly duties. Something that was once impossible has become possible through the blood of the Lamb of God. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus gives us an invitation to draw near where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The only one who has the authority to invite us to God is God himself, and he now invites us to draw near and to find rest. The next invitation is introduced in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The Jews who were receiving this letter were struggling with holding fast the confession of our hope. There were pressures to waver and to return to Judaism, and I think looking at this word hope in our, in our current English usage, it refers to the possibility of a good outcome. Like I can say to you, hope you have a good day today. But that by no means guarantees that you will have a good day, right? Our 
hope in Christ is not a maybe, but a sure thing. This hope is a guarantee. And since our hope doesn't waver, may our confession never waver. Our God is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. And in our day and age, we witness some pressures to let go of the confession of our hope. But it is especially apparent in other countries, as discussed by our missionaries uh, over the course of this missions conference. But it's here I want to talk about the God of fellowship. The God of fellowship. We see that God is personal. He desires to have a relationship with us. And we see that Christianity holds to a personal understanding of God. Many attributes of personality can be expressed only within a relationship. Things like love, communication, empathy, self-giving, faithfulness. These personal attributes are expressed interpersonally. We see that these personal attributes have been expressed in our God for all eternity among the three members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So even though Christianity as a religion is monotheistic, God does not exist as a singularity, but as a trinity. We serve one God, three persons. So comparing Christianity to other monotheistic religions, such as Islam, what do we see? We see a non-personal conception of God. Both Judaism and Islam consist of very Uh, mechanical rituals, recitations, and the like. It's impersonal. It's legalistic. It's all about performance. Since the God of the Bible is personal, we are able to approach our God in a personal and in a relational way, such as we read in King David's Psalms, as he pours out his heart to God, expressing the anguish of his soul. How amazing that we too can pour out our hearts before the Lord, being real, being raw, being honest, that we can cast our cares on him for he cares for us. It's through Christ and his sacrifice that we are able to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Now the God of fellowship has made humans in his image who need fellowship. When God saw Adam, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Then God filled that need. He created woman for companionship, for fellowship. So we we best reflect the image of God when we live in community. We best reflect the image of Christ when we fellowship in a community of believers. And, and so our next section tonight includes verses 24 and 25, and it's fellowship with God's people. Fellowship with God's people. And this portion includes the final invitations. As we abide in the Lord, fellowshipping with him, we then have the overflow of his love to pour out on his people. And one of the fruits and evidence of our fellowship with God that the Apostle John gives in his first epistle 
is love for one another. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. With this in mind, let us look at these two verses, which read, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word consider means to fix your mind upon. We are to fix our minds upon one another with the purpose to stir up love and good works within one another. I've got some questions for you. Are people, are people closer to God after spending time with you? Are fellow believers stirred up to love because of your influence? Are people inspired to do good works after talking with you? There are some people in my life that I, as I reflect on this, I reflect on my time with them and I think I'm a more faithful follower of Christ because of their influence on my life. Let's look at the phrase love and good works and we'll do so by looking at good works first. And so I'm going to read a passage concerning good works and I want you to see the progression of the passage. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Do you see the progression of this passage? What do we notice? What do we see? We see that the good news comes first, then good works. The gospel of grace leads to good works. Once we understand grace and our undeserving state and what Christ has done on our behalf, we then are called to go and do, do good works. It's not the other way around, right? The order is significant because without our understanding of grace, the good works becomes attempts to earn God's favor. And it turns into legalism. But how do we receive grace? Through faith. And faith comes by hearing. So how can we stir one another to love and good works? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to one another. We need to point one another to the cross. We need to continually remind ourselves of the realities of the gospel and how they apply to our lives. The gospel is not something that we graduate from once we get saved. No, we don't ever move on from the gospel. The gospel should be even more real to us now than the moment when we got saved. And what is the greatest act of love, but what Christ did for us on the cross. For he laid down his life for us on our behalf, even while we were his enemies. So should we not love the church, the body of Christ? As Ephesians 5 states, husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If we are to have a heart for the things of God, to love what God loves, we must then love the people of God, the church. Love them as he does. 
And guess what? The church is a part of our gospel inheritance. Part of Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus says, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God has given us the saints, the church to you, to me, in order to grow and mature us in Christ, to be encouraged, to be stirred up, to love and good works. And what I love about the body of Christ is that we truly are a team. When I see a fellow believer succeeding, I can celebrate with them because when they succeed, I succeed. We're not competing against one another, but we are indeed on the same team. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So if a brother or sister in Christ is struggling, we feel that struggle as well. We have empathy towards one another. We have a connection, a bond between our spiritual family that's stronger than any biological family, than natural blood, because that stronger bond is Christ. Uh, during COVID, this passage, verses 24 and 25, was uh, verses people went to. It really caused people the time of 2020 to really evaluate why they go to church. If you went for the teaching, the sermons, guess what? You were able to cozy up in your recliner, up in your PJs, and watch the message from the comfort of your home on the screen. And I know I personally used to think of assembling together the, the gathering of believers. Uh, the church was just a place to receive and, and be filled up. But my view has shifted. I not only view it as a place to receive, but I view it as a place to give, to pour out. And you can't do that online. You can't do that with virtual church. I love the illustration provided to us by the Dead Sea. And, and one thing that's unique about the Dead Sea in Israel is that it has an inlet, right, the Jordan River, but it has no outlet. The Dead Sea is so salty that it cannot support aquatic life. So this is what we become if we keep to ourselves, never pouring out to others. We become dead. We have this consumer mentality in our day and age. Life so easily becomes about self, our wants, our desires. We ask, how will this benefit me? When we consider one another, we ask, how will this benefit others? So I want you to consider your role in this body of believers. There is an, an important but limited role up here from from the pulpit. I cannot hear what happened uh, earlier on in your week. I can't hear about your struggles from up here. You know, I can't pray with you what you're going through. And even afterward, I'm just one person. But guess what? God has placed many members in his body in order to build it up. God has placed you here. So during fellowship time, you can connect with and encourage someone else.
you can have a conversation with them. You can pray with them. A brother or sister in Christ stirring one another to love and good works. And this is something that I'm working on. But to not just settle for surface conversations, but also go deep and ask people, what is the Lord teaching you in your personal Bible time? Or ask, how can I be praying for you? And even just praying with them right then and there to not even delay. So instead of coming to church just to be filled up, come to church on mission to pour out. Being a blessing to others. What you will find is that you yourself will be blessed as it is more blessed to give than to receive. The church needs you. You have unique giftings that God has blessed you with to encourage and stir up others to love and good works. Someone I might not be able to connect with, maybe you can. And if you don't show up and look for those opportunities to serve, to invest in others, someone might not receive the encouragement that God wanted you to give. So let's find opportunities to serve in the church, to participate in the work God is doing here. Like I said, you will be blessed. As you can tell, none of this can take place unless we assemble together. It was the habit of some to neglect the gathering together of believers. So what was at stake for them? Their sacrifice consisted of being cast out of their Jewish families and communities. We know that persecution was on the rise. What is at stake for us? Not much. We definitely do not experience the same struggles as they did back then or as our brothers and sisters in Christ do now around the world. And even thinking about what's at stake for those in those uh, countries who are hostile to the gospel, to Christianity, you know, they give up their families, their livelihoods, even their lives. It's encouraging to, to think about the sacrifice that, that they exhibit in order to gather. And if, if we're considering this, sacrifice is there anything that we sacrifice in order to assemble in order to assemble together the only thing i can think of is like time maybe energy um and stuff money if you consider the the gas to get here but considering people had horse horses and carriages like you know what, a bit over a century ago we're doing pretty good um but yeah i think in our day and age we definitely are proud of the fact that we are busy, right? Busyness is like the badge of honor in our society. What have you been up to? Oh, I've been so busy, right? So sacrificing time, I mean, we can always prioritize kingdom purposes. So really, we have no excuse unless there's a physical barrier. We know that discouragement takes root if we do not meet. One of the enemies, the, ta uh, the enemy's tactics is isolation, making us feel that we are alone, that we're the only one who struggles with a particular issue, etc. I was reminded of the prophet Elijah, how he was all alone and he was in despair. And we see that there's these communities that are popping up such as the LGBTQ plus 
They're gathering in unrighteousness as people are trying to find a place to belong. May we gather in righteousness. May we offer true loving community, not that of acceptance of anything and everything under the sun, not accepting immoral behavior, but that of sacrificial love, care, and compassion. So when we do meet, we are able, as this passage says, to exhort one another or encourage one another. So let's find ways to do that. We see this phrase, one another, in this passage. And and one another really refers to, I do this for you, you do this for me, right? It's not one-sided, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. There are these one another ministries described in the New Testament, which can only take place if we gather together as the body of Christ. And I want to just share some of them with you here. Love one another, be kind to, forgive, bear with, bear one another's burdens, comfort, care for, confess sins to, pray for, instruct, edify, or build up one another, exhort, teach, and admonish. Do not provoke one another. What would the church look like if we lived out these one another ministries? This is not just the responsibility of the pastor. This is for the laity, the regular church members. It's for you. It's for me. As mentioned before, teaching from the pulpit is necessary. It's important. It should not be the only ministry going on. You interact with people that the pastor might not have the opportunity to. And so what an amazing opportunity to love the body of Christ. So part of our motivation is that the day is approaching. What day? The coming of Christ. When the Lord comes for us, his church, what do you want to be caught doing? Being faithful or being lackadaisical? May we eagerly be doing what this section of scripture has outlined for us. May we draw near. May we hold fast the confession. May we consider one another to stir up love and good works. May we not forsake assembling of ourselves together, and may we exhort or encourage one another. And so, in conclusion, today we looked at fellowship. We looked at fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. And, and my prayer for us tonight is that we will not take these, uh, these privileges for granted, but that we will continually invest in our relationship with the Lord, our great high priest, and our relationship with fellow believers. Being intentional to pray, being intentional to serve one another, to serve the body of Christ. So if you are able, let's stand and close in prayer. So, Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is the mediator of a new covenant. We were once far off, but we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for what Christ has secured for us, that we have access to you, God, that we can go directly to you. We thank you that we can come to you in prayer and that you hear us. We thank you that you've given us the body of Christ 
people to encourage us, people to come alongside of us, to, you've given us people to serve. So Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would get our eyes off ourselves and consider one another. And so God, I thank you for this body. They've just been such a blessing to me. And I pray that you will just bless their week as they serve you faithfully. We just commit all this to you in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Thank you. Go in peace.